Hi, I'm Susanna Kalchich, and you're listening to Life in Practice podcast. I'm curious about the big questions in life and how we can experience more meaning and fulfillment every day. Join me as my guests share their challenges, successes, and what it means to put our purpose, our values, and our lives in practice. Hello and welcome to Life in Practice podcast. This is your host, Susanna. And today my guest is Jilly Moorhawk. She's a writer, EFT therapist and a health researcher. Welcome, Jilly. Thank you, Susanna. So Jilly and I uh, connected over a shared passion and um, interest for personal development, psychology, spirituality and all these wonderfully uh, fascinating subjects. That's right. And sexuality. Yeah, and sexuality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Loads of stuff. <laughs> don't don't yeah. miss that one out. That's yeah. one of the most important ones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, since uh, getting to know you, um, there's like we could talk for so long. There's been like so many things to talk about. So, with this particular conversation, um, I'd like to focus more on just have a general um, overview of the main. Uh, challenges that you've had in your life and how you've been able to overcome them. Sure. So, shall uh, we start at the beginning then? Yeah. <laughs> so I was born seven weeks early, and I spent my early weeks in an incubator. And uh, I have to say that my relationship with my mother has never been great, and it's only recently that I've discovered that one of the reasons for that is having been in an incubator and not having that early bonding that's natural and normal for a mother and a child when they've just come together. Um, and in my case, my mother then went off to her father's funeral when I was about four weeks old and stayed away for a week. So she not only left me when I was born, but again, when I was only four weeks old. So I learned this pattern of people leaving me. And um, you know, my mother used to say, I don't know why you don't like me. So she, she could tell, and I didn't know why I didn't like her either. Um, and that this book that I read recently said that if your mother isn't there for you when you're a baby, it's very difficult for you to trust her. Or if she leaves you, even if it's a separation because she has to go into hospital or somebody dies, or you have to go into hospital, that separation in the first two years of life can have impact that just rolls on f for the whole of the child's life and affects the relationship between them uh, forever. And nobody really knows why until this research has been done and now they're starting to see that it's really important. Um, and that uh, that disconnection... Uh, leads to trauma, and trauma, as we've talked about, leads to health care, health issues, uh, psychological issues, so many things not going right in life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the whole thing with personal development is because you can see that things aren't going right and wanting to get to that sense of rightness that other people seem to have. Mm, yeah, that's so true, and uh, I really... 
um, thought it was important what you said about the, the feeling of lack of trust for um, your primary caregiver mm. and then what kind of impact that has on on yourself but also the relationships that you then later on to develop with other people mm. I, I said to you that one of the gifts I got from my parents was uh, the love they showed for each other They're, they were absolutely devoted to each other even when my father was in his later years and he had Alzheimer's when my mother walked into the room his face would light up you know they just did everything together and were really happy together um, sometimes to the exclusion of everybody else uh, but uh, that was a really good role modeling for me and uh, I feel very fortunate you know I didn't really appreciate it at the time probably but I feel very fortunate now to have had that modeling of a proper love relationship because I think it's it's more difficult for people if they haven't got that um, sometimes to connect in relationships mm. though um, uh, my my ex-husband and I discussed this at length because his <clears throat> his family was quite uh, difficult his family of upbringing um, but his mother and his sisters loved him, so he did get a lot of love from people. And he he said that he saw kindness in his sister's relationship with her husband, but there wasn't really anybody who had uh, a great passion. You know, it was mainly arranged marriages. Um, but he's grown up to be a very loving person. Um and he always was. So I think I think there's a lot of love innate, and I think that um, there are things that can derail it, for sure. So I think parental breaks is one of the things that derails it, and not having good models is another issue. But I think underneath it all, I think there's such a longing for love, a longing for acceptance that maybe there's this innate lovability that we have in us. Mm, yeah, I think so. Well, I guess we are um, tribal and uh, social um, uh, um, creatures. So we are uh, wired for connection and we're wired to form uh, relationships because we can't, as humans, we can't survive on our own. Mm you know at least maybe now we can with all the the modern technology but before um we had to be a part of a group a part of a tribe mm. and i think the loss of tr the loss of tribe the loss of community is a huge issue um not only in this country around the world i saw, i read something recently it was about something like 30% of americans live alone don't have much. That's a huge number. Yeah. They they say they feel lonely, and uh, you know that uh, that's you know if thirty percent of the population weren't eating enough or or didn't have a roof over their heads, there would be an outcry. But not having people, that people don't really seem to think that it's important. And I think it's hugely important to connect with somebody, um, uh, and some people. And particularly the elderly can be very isolated in their later years, and you know that's really 
not something that would have happened even up till like 50, 100 years ago. Mm, absolutely. But then as as healing as relationships can be, they can also inflict a lot of trauma on us as well. So talk to me a bit more about the 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 impact of the trauma that you had when you were a um, baby and how that had an impact um, on your relationship with your mom and then later on as you began to uh, develop as a young girl as a teenager as an adult. Um, I I didn't really uh, spend a lot of time with my family. Um, I had friends at school and because I lived in quite a small town. You know, from a very early age, I would just trot off and, and see one of my friends. So I never felt like there was anything missing until much later in life. Um, anything missing in my family, because my normal was I'd go and play with Pamela or I'd go and play with Lynn or I'd go and see Alison or, you know, I always had somebody to go and spend time with. And, you know, when you're a kid, you want to play games and stuff that everybody else is... It's like, it's a bit childish. And it's like, yo, I'm a child, so this is what I want to do with my time. So it was only in my 30s, I think, that I suddenly came to the realisation that I hadn't had a happy childhood. Um, because because all the bits were there, you know. We had a nice house and and I wasn't beaten. My parents didn't drink. So there was no alcohol abuse. My parents loved each other, so there were no fights and arguments. So to the outside world, it would have seemed like a, a, a you know, perfectly good childhood home. Um, uh, but there wasn't any affection. There wasn't any hugs or kisses or warmth or anything like that. And uh, so it was. It was that what I realised that had been missing. In, in my younger years, and that's what made me start to look at um, uh, the other issues in my life. Um, one thing for me was I couldn't wait to leave. Um, I went to university and kind of never came back. And people people who kind of went back and stayed at home, I was just kind of like, really? Why? <laughs> um, though, I, you know, I did see my parents. I'd go and visit them once a month. They lived outside London. And I would speak to them on the phone. Um, so there was very much uh, a sense of duty instilled in us as children. I have an elder sister. And I feel that um, I've had, you know, over the years I've had therapists who've said, you know, why, why are you still seeing your parents when, you know, when they do these kind of things or say these kind of things. It was it was mainly kind of really nasty, spiteful, unsupportive comments that that I I remember feeling most wounded by. And um yeah, so I, I went for all my nourishment to my friend social group. You know, they say that you you pick your friends but you don't pick your family. And sometimes, you know, you feel like you've been dropped into the wrong nest and uh, it may not be the the best place there. You know, my parents were uh, kind of pre-war generation and, you know, there was a lot of survival issues and people dying and um, a lot of grief. Apparently my father's brother died in the war and he never really got over it. And if you're stuck in that grieving thing, it's very...
difficult to give attention and affection to the people around you. Mm, that's really true. Um, it reminds me of a book which I haven't actually read, but I've heard quite a bit, um, quite a bit about it. Uh, it's called Running on Empty, and I think it's basically about um, like childhood um, emotional uh, n- n- neglect. Um, and it very much speaks to what you're talking about, whereas like on the surface, like your childhood was fine. Like, it wasn't really anything mm. bad, but deep down you, f- you feel like s- something's not quite right. Mm. Yeah, that, that's absolutely yeah. true. Mm. Um, but I went and I found that elsewhere, you mm. know, so because I couldn't get it with my family. I got it from my friends and I've always had... Uh, a social group that's been very supportive and, you know, friends that I've had for decades um, who who are there for me if I need them and for whom I would also always be there as well. So I think um, maybe it's the nature of the beast. If you don't get it in one place, you'll always look for it in another place or you'll find it in your love relationships. Um, but as you said, there's this innate need to belong and it's, it's a survival need because in the jungle, two, two's better than one, ten's way better than one because if the tiger comes, he'll only grab one of you and then nine live and for you know go on for another day. Um, and that this is the same thing in the therapeutic model is that being with another who witnesses your emotions and your grief or your difficulties is healing because we're just not meant to be alone Mm. yeah I completely agree with that and um, to your point though about um, I mean certainly as a child when you um, sought out to have your needs met by your friends like obviously your friends who are like also children don't have the capacity to give you the kind of um, like to uh, no to nourish you in the way a parent can mm. yeah i don't know yeah i don't know because that that was my reality yeah was you know i'd rather spend time with them you know yeah. I, no I, I think what i'm trying to mean is that even though like your friends were there for mm. you they cannot replace what your parents should give you sh- should have because they're mm. they're children as well so it's kind yeah. of children parenting each other yeah and i think what we touched upon like in previous conversations i think when you realized what you had experienced and it's the process of like reparenting yourself mm. yeah inner child works really yeah. really powerful um and i think i think if everybody looks inside um they'll find well, not everybody, a lot of people will find that inside them is a child of a certain age. And if it's a, if it's a baby, then that's the time at which your first kind of split or your first lack happened. You know, some people will be a child at six. Some people it might be a little bit older. Um, but for lots of people, it's a, you know, a teenage, not a teenage, a toddler age child, like kind of age two and three. Um, because though it's the first two years that are kind of critical, but even up to five years, ideally, the mother should be with her child and should have a relationship with her child. And these days that's not happening, and I'm really worried about how 
that's going to impact society going forward um, because childcare with a different nurse or a different nursery nurse looking after your child every day or a different one every week or if it changes it's not the same as having a, a female adult ideally the mother looking after the child all the time mm. and it's a, not a popular thing to say because mm. women now want to have opportunities and choices in the career field in the work field they want to be independent but really the needs of the child are enormous in, the, in that period um, so is it such a big sacrifice to just take five years out of your working life but financially people can't afford to do it um, I think when the the research is done over the next generation two generations perhaps governments will be wise enough to support parents to have five years off so that their child gets the best developmental support because the long-term issues that run on from that in terms of health care, mental health care, social structures, abuse, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse and all these kind of things, you know, the cost of that's phenomenal. So if you let parents look after their children and you have healthier children it's going to really impact society in the long term Mm, absolutely yeah that's so true but yeah we live in a in in a tough world and um yeah as you say there's so many different pressures and people want to have choices and options and yeah it's just about i guess seeing what what you as an as an individual choose to prioritize as well and then obviously hoping what the uh, government can do or the company that you work for, what possibilities are there. But yeah, as you say, we'll, we'll see what, what yeah. in, in a few years' time. Well, I, I, I think you can see it now with yeah. the, the kind of look at me, look at me, look at me kind of attitude that is very prevalent with, you know, Instagram and Facebook and people posting pictures of themselves and me doing this and me doing that and me doing this. It's because they want to be looked at, given attention. And often it's because the mother wasn't there to give them attention. It's the eye-to-eye contact between mother and child that's been found to be so crucial because it's validation. Mm. And now this is what it seems that everybody wants. They want to be validated and they want people to look at them. And they want to be famous for being famous. Um, And, you know, if you go into a career room with children and ask them career questions, what do you want to be? I want to be famous. Because they want people to look at them. Mm. Because Mm. there was nobody there to give them that that eye-to-eye contact. It's all all part of the development. Mm. Um, Yeah, that's so true. But I think it's also not just... um, like with the parents but I think um in um influences like from tv from what we see that we're told like oh this is like if you if you um have this kind of look or if you um if you are um famous for the sake of being famous like these people are financially rewarded Mm. so we're kind of almost taught like okay this is this is the way you should be 
because these people are given attention they are paid um loads of um money as well mm. and you're but kind of shown like oh this is a like if someone is famous you think oh they're uh celebrated so they must they must be a valuable person like i, I mm. used to think like that when i was very young because oh if someone's on tv or if they're like, oh that means that they're an important person mm. but as you grow up you realize well actually no the, the real important people are actually behind the scenes doing the real work mm. and um it, it is very difficult but you know there's been a race a recent spate of suicides from people who were famous for their five minutes um, on the, some of these reality shows, and once the camera stopped rolling and the attention stops being there, it's absolutely devastating for them. So it's 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 not an easy ride. It's not it's not money for nothing. Oh, I think yeah. people think it is money for nothing, but when the chips are down, then they realise mm. actually this has had a huge impact, and it's not something to be courted. Mm-hmm. in the way that it's been done over the last 10 years. Hopefully there's been a lot of publicity about it this week and hopefully people will start to pay attention to the fact that this is people using people for entertainment. So somebody described it as being like gladiators, you know, in the old days when the Romans would stick people in the amphitheatre and have them kill each other. Now they do it on TV. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... What come what it comes down to is um, for the for the individual the importance of uh, cultivating and developing your own self esteem. I think that's key. Well, this is something they should teach at school, really. You know, the things that they teach you at school that you never use afterwards and the things that they could teach you at school that could change your life. You know, self esteem. Mm -hmm. You know how to how to praise people, how to receive praise all the kind of things that you need um, for your health and mental well-being, much more important than algebra and, uh, you know, why, why hills are a certain shape. You know, you, these are things that you don't really need to know. Um, but this is how the education system is, mm. is set up at the moment. And there, there's lots of pressures looking at different ways to educate children because it's become very one-dimensional. It's all, it's all academia and uh, the education of the mind and not looking at the body. And you know that I'm, I'm very big on body awareness. So Sir Ken Robinson is my hero. He's a professor emeritus of education at Warwick University who left to do uh, a career as a consultant. Um, he's written, he's done research for the British government. And he recommends bringing back the arts. So this is music, drama, sports, and art, painting, and uh, drawing and sculpture and things like that. And he says, we progressively educate our children from the waist up and into the head. And this is my question that I ask everybody, where are you in your body? And a good 70% of people say, I'm in my head, of course, as if that's the only place you can be, like your eyes and your mouth. And Of course, they're in your head. And then you find some people and you find that they're not in their head at all. You know, they're in their heart or they're in their belly or they're in their hands. And then you start thinking, well, maybe Ken's on to something, maybe by educating ourselves into our heads, we're missing out on everything that's going on 
below the neck. And because we have no connection particularly with our body, we don't think to look after it in ways that would be probably much more healthy and much more beneficial than our very superficial way of, you know, people go, I do look after my body. I go to the gym twice a week, three times a week. Yeah, and, you know, it's because you want to look like that guy. You want to have that beefcake body. And um, but, but you're eating McDonald's and, and sweeties and chocolate and, and, you know, when did you last have a carrot? And um, kind of the love and care for your body is missing. Um, and I think our education kind of persuades us that the brain's the only important thing. And if you haven't got a good brain, then you're um, you're missing out or you're not as good as the people who are smarter than you are, even though you may have far better skills. You know, you were showing me those beautiful pictures mm. and it's just like, that's fantastic, that kind of work. And that's a, it's a real gift. It's a real skill. And saying that because he can't do algebra, that he's not as good as everybody else. Now, I'd love to be able to draw like that. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Each person has their own skills and their own uh, talents. Like, we're not all good at everything. No. Um, but I want to get into now that you've you've talked about the importance of being in your body and having uh, more more awareness of, of your body because um, you were telling me before that you had quite a, a traumatic experience when you were like was it in your uh, 20s mm. that you then uh, developed um, agoraphobia and that was obviously yeah. like heightened um, heightened anxiety and also so I'll let you speak mm. into that so and this is something that's come up recently in more recent research about trauma is how um, trauma can either be inherited from your your previous generations or early trauma can predispose you to react even more acutely to something like that. I was attacked in a taxi like so many women in London before they were licensed. You know, anybody could take the car and say hey I'm a taxi can I take you somewhere and um, I, I have no no memory what happened the only reason I know was the following morning my husband said what happened to you last night you know you came home and you were sobbing and you said that somebody had attacked you and I literally I wiped it out wiped it out of my consciousness and I carried on like everything was fine and then about six weeks later which apparently is it's kind of a common time frame for these things to kick in. I started having panic attacks if I was in a, an enclosed space. So it became impossible to do the job I was doing at the time because, you know, I had to be in meetings. I had to have people come into my office and I, I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, and it was heartbreaking because I loved my job. Um, I worked in the music business and... Um, I have fabulous stories from then, and, and but I just I loved my job. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the bands I worked with, and you know to lose that was, was devastating. Um, along with losing my personal freedom and being able to feel safe outside the house and things, and um, I spent twelve years trying to find a cure. 
and I never gave up. And I tried every ology under the sun, you know, psychology, parapsychology, everything. You know, the, the drugs that they gave me didn't work. Psychology didn't work. I did past life therapy. I did homeopathy. I did acupuncture. You know, everything that I could do, I did. And um, I, somehow I never lost hope. I'm not quite sure how. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, after like such a long time, a lot of people would have thought, okay, that's it. Yeah, I'm going to be like this for life. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm not going to be like this for life. I don't care. Um, uh, and I picked up a book called, uh, what's it called? By a psychologist, an American psychologist called Roger Callahan. Um, he wrote one book called The Five Minute Therapy, for The Five Minute Phobia Cure. And, um, I thought, I found it. This, this is it. Every, everything I found, it was just like, this is going to do it. This is going to fix it. This is going to be great. Um, and I found a doctor here in the UK who'd only just trained in the therapy and really wasn't very good at it. She didn't have the experience. So um, enough shift happened to make me think it was worth pursuing again. So this, this guy, Roger Callahan, was charging thousands, thousands of dollars for a session. And I didn't have thousands of dollars. Um, but his kind of number two... Uh, I think she was a, she had a PhD anyway, so she was a doctor um, based in San Francisco and she was about half the price. I thought, hey, what do I have to lose? Just my fear. And I had two one-hour sessions with this woman and after the second session, the agoraphobia had gone. Wow. And what exactly... Uh, what happened in that? Was it like a hypnosis? No, um, it, it's uh, this was thought field therapy, which is uh, tapping on the acupuncture meridian. So the therapy I do now is EFT, which is a variation. is a is a is a kind of a simpler variation. And um, so, can you talk us through, like, kind of roughly, like what happens? Okay, so <clears throat> you think of whatever it is that's bothering you. Um, so if you have issues around money, you think about having lots of money and if that makes you feel good, then that's great. But if it makes you feel a little anxious or a little tight in your chest, it's likely that there's some kind of block there around having money. Now, everybody says, I want to have money, but the truth is lottery winners will have lost all their money. Most of them will have lost all their money within five years and they'll be back to the level of financial security they had right at the beginning. Um, so nobody's kind of really come up with a, a reason for this. It's been noticed. Um, but I think there's a you have a financial set point. And if you start looking at having money above that financial set point, which comes from your your heritage, your family, you know, if there were people in your family who had money and lost it and bad things happened, then you learn, hmm, maybe having money is not such a safe thing to do. So I'll just keep it a, a lower amount of money. So in, in EFT, we get you to focus on the feeling, not the thought, uh, the feeling that you have in your body. So this tightness, this tension, this a slight sick feeling maybe if you think about having lots of money 
and the responsibility that comes with lots of money. And then uh, there are acupuncture points here and here and here. And you just tap on those 10 times, working through the sequence, while you think about that problem. So at the beginning, you'll give it a value maybe 7 or 8 out of 10, or 10's the worst. And after you do a couple of rounds of the tapping, you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, actually, it's, it's 5 now. It's not as bad as it was. So then you go back into that feeling again, pull that feeling into yourself, really connect with it, really connect with how you feel in your body, and then do the tapping again. And then maybe it'll go down to a three. Or maybe it'll get stuck and it won't go anywhere else. And then you look for other beliefs around having money and what money means. You know, if, you're, if your father had lots of money but then drank a lot and became abusive, you'll go, actually, you know, money's really not a safe thing to have. So I would like money. I would like lots of money. But part of me really doesn't want to have the money. And you get this inner conflict. Um, and ultimately, you've got, you've got three brains. You've got the brain in your head. You've got your heart brain, which is, deals with your emotions. And you've got your body brain, which deals with your sensations. And the body brain is all about survival. So if something is dangerous, it overrules what everybody else wants. And it's going, no, 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 no. Having that relationship with that person was very unpleasant, was very unhappy. So we don't want to have those kind of relationships. That person had lots of money. And look what a bad person they turned out to be. So I can't possibly have money like that. Even though, even though up here you really want it. You want to have all those zeros in your bank account with a one in the front. But your body brain, which is about survival, goes, is this going to help me survive? Mm -mm, maybe not. So we'll just... Skip that by. You can work as hard as you like. You know, I told you the, the story. We both like this story, don't we? There's an ant running around trying to do everything. Really busy, really busy, really busy. Doing this, doing this and this and this and this. Because this is what we want to do. We want to go to Tokyo. And what you don't realize is the ant is sitting on an elephant that's going to Los Angeles. So it doesn't matter how hard the ant works, how much stuff it does, how busy it is, what it thinks and does and plans makes no difference because the elephant, which is your subconscious mind, is going somewhere else. So the only way to fix that is to reconnect with your subconscious mind and start working with it to persuade it to take you where you want to go. So that's dealing with all the blocks, all the underlying subconscious blocks that you have that you may have forgotten. It may be some incident that happened when you were 10 years old and somebody said something to you. And when you think about it, you go, oh, yeah, I remember that. And there's so many things that happen in your life. And you forget most of them. And the ones that you remember have some kind of charge attached to them. And that's why you remember it, because it hasn't been processed and put into long-term storage. So it's still kind of active. It's still having an effect on you. And if you're not careful, that elephant is not going to go where you want it to go. And this is why things may not be working out for you in your life in the way that you would like.
Mm, that's really, really powerful. <laughs> and it just goes to show, like, you know, um, yeah, we've got a lot of crazy um, um, ants trying to move things. And, yeah, it can feel really frustrating when you're like, but hang on a minute, I've been doing so much work or going in this direction. And, yet, yeah, you know here we are like you know in a certain part of your life you can feel really stuck mm. i think i can definitely relate to what you're saying about the body because like was with me like i've got a stutter and that's it's really um interesting you know for me to observe because even at times when i feel really safe with someone really comfortable but it's like sometimes if we start talking about a subject that's more that's more emotionally charged I can feel myself I start to block more like there's something in my body that's kind of telling me that okay no like it's not safe to express yourself mm. like even though I know it's perfectly safe for me to express myself but there's something that's causing this like this um uh hesitancy and this um this bah, blocking so it's really, really interesting. Like, so from that perspective, I can really relate to it. Mm. So you know, people don't really have a very good connection with their body. Mm. So one of the other exercises I do in the workshops that I do is I say, who do you love most? Pick up the three people or the three things that you love most. Mm. And in all the times that I've done it, and people go, my parents, my partner, my children, my dog, my cat. Some people even say their car. Because you think about it, all these men out on a Sunday morning with their bucket of water and they're polishing away and they're cleaning and they're making it look gorgeous. And men love their cars. Some men really love their cars. And but, but on a practical basis, if your car is not working, you're not going to get to the station. You can't get to work. You can't impress that girl who lives down the road and you can't take her out on a date. You can't escape when your mother-in-law comes to visit. You know, having a car is a really powerful resource. And your body is all those things. And there, there were two people who put their body on their list. And that, that, that was really, really unusual. And one of them was, was a guy who was a quadriplegic. He'd been in a car accident in his teenage years and had been paralyzed from kind of upper chest down. And for him, understanding what his body could do even with this damage was a source of gratitude for him. Mm. But you, you don't want to be disabled or crippled or damaged or sick before you start to value your body because it's the only one you've got doesn't matter how much money you've got. You can't go and buy a new one. doesn't much matter how much like you love going shopping. This is the only body you have. And when you're in your 20s and your 30s, it's kind of like, yeah, 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 I'll, you know, I'll worry about that a bit later. And then later it comes and you've got diabetes or you've got rheumatoid arthritis or so many of these chronic illnesses, many of which didn't exist 50 years ago, 100 years ago, I read something recently which I thought was fascinating. This doctor said when she was a medical student in the 70s, they were taken to see this patient. And uh, the teacher said, this is something you probably will never see in your 
case history, but we wanted to show you because it's a really interesting topic. Any idea what they had? Um, it could it was it like a child or someone really young who had like um, diabetes or something like that? Because I know that they're saying like um, that children these days are are more likely to have a shorter lifespan than their parents, mm. which is like the first time like in history. That's what they're that's what they're expecting. Is it something along those lines? It, well, it is. Um, it's Alzheimer's. Oh, oh my gosh. And Alzheimer's is called type 3 diabetes. Really? No, because there seems to be a link between um, diabetes, sugar management, insulin resistance, and Alzheimer's. But in the 70s, Alzheimer's was considered a really rare condition. And now, uh, you know, it's like 50%, 40%, 50% of older people, and even people who aren't, so old people in their 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, th these are all lifestyle illnesses. Diabetes, coronary heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. These are the, the big plagues for, uh, you know, the people of your generation, my generation. But they those illnesses were extremely rare. The first recorded heart attack was in the early 1900s. Whereas now, you know, you just think heart attacks, you know, that happens all the time. In the early 1900s, they identified the first time that somebody had a heart attack. So it's diet, it's environmental, it's the toxicity in the environment that we have to deal with on a, on a daily basis. Our water isn't clean like it used to be when it came out of the mountains. You know, I think in London they say that water has been recycled 13 times mm. by the time you drink it. You know, yeah. it's, it's not, not, not so appealing. Yeah. <clears throat> and our food, you know, some of our food, you know, looks like the toys that you buy in, in the toy shop. You know, it's so well manufactured. It doesn't look like anything that you should eat. Um Although I think it's important to sort of say there, I think there is a genetic component as well, like especially with something like cancer, because there, like I've known some people who they've lived a very healthy lifestyle, but they went on to um, develop mm. cancer. Yeah. So it's not always as clear cut. I think I think with something like cancer, still we I I don't think there's, I don't think people know as much. Um, mm about it obviously we know more and more but it's i think it's not as clear-cut and as easy to understand well the thing is it's just it's more common now mm. you know even in the 1700s the 1600s people still had tumors people was were you know it was mentioned in the medical records of the time um but it not not one in two not one in three you know in um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, cancer wasn't nearly as common as it is now. Diabetes wasn't as common. I'm not saying these diseases didn't exist. I'm saying we have to look at why they're so common now. Mm. What is it that we're doing that's making them become triggered in people who are young? You know, people used to be that cancer was for old people. And now you have 
women in their 20s and 30s who have breast cancer. You know, why why is it spreading across all the generations now? Mm. And, you know, the people who look into the functional medicine doctors talk about the diet and the environment. And the, the one thing that isn't really talked about and should be is the amount of stress. Mm. I saw a medical program when I was seven or eight. I used to love watching science programs. That was my favorite. And uh, some research some research had shown that 70 to 90% of all visits to the doctor were caused by stress. Wow. When did you last go to the doctor with a physical complaint and have him ask you about the stress you were under? Mm. It's not a question that's ever asked. Yeah. Yeah, I think we definitely we need a more um, holistic approach to healthcare, and and consider all 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 of the different components that have an impact on our health. Because it isn't just as simple as having to like um, to soothe a certain uh, symptom, because that's usually what quite a lot of healthcare mm. is. It's just okay, take these tablets. You're not gonna you won't feel this anymore. But it's like, well, actually, you're probably your body is trying to communicate okay there's a problem here that's why i'm showing you signs that something's wrong but you need to you need to treat the core not just put a plaster over yeah. the, the over the surface yeah that's absolutely right it's like you've got a flashing red light on your head going a warning warning and 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 people put a, like a plaster over the flashing light so that it doesn't bother you anymore but it's, it's mm. still going on yeah and yeah, so you had you experienced some of your own uh, health challenges as well, and that must have been quite um, well. I'll let you, I'll let you speak into that. So yeah, when I was um, ten years ago, I uh, found a, a pucker on the skin in my li- on my breast. So I went to the doctor, and they said, "Well, we'll get it checked out. Don't expect it to be anything." And I went in to see the doctors and they said, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer. Um, but I had, to, I had uh, you know, the nurse said to me, you don't seem very surprised. And I'm going, yeah, well, if you knew what my life was like, you wouldn't be surprised because it's just one thing after another. Yeah, because like, you, you recently um, got over your um, agoraphobia, right? Um, no, I'd had the agoraphobia. Then I went through five years of infertility right. and IVF. And then I had a two-year break and then I got cancer. Wow. So, yeah, it was it was one thing after another. Um, uh, so I had to decide what I was going to do. Uh, I spoke to a friend of mine who had cancer and uh, she'd gone the natural route. And she said to me, she said, take everything they offer you. Take every treatment they offer you. She said, I'm going to die. She said, if I had my time over, I'd have radiotherapy, chemotherapy, any therapy going. So is that because the um, the um, natural route didn't work for her? Is that yeah. What was it? yeah. So... For me, it was never, 
it was never a choice. Um, I'd spent 10 years um, following a very healthy lifestyle, trying, trying to be healthy. And I knew that this was a flashing light in my body going, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And poisoning my body with radiation and chemotherapy just didn't seem to to do it for me. You know, my body was clearly already really stressed and not working properly. So the only way for me to be sure that it wouldn't come back was to find out why it happened in the first place. So I had surgery, I had the tumour removed. And I had a fabulous doctor, most wonderful, thoughtful, caring physician. You know, I'll be so forever so grateful to him because he listened to what I said and he heard what I needed and he gave it to me, even though it was out with the national health and it was out with the normal protocol. He put himself out to support me in what I believed. And you don't get that very often. Mm. I mean, that was an amazing doctor. Um, so after the surgery, I, I spent hours every day looking at all the stuff online about cancer treatments. Talk about overwhelm, you know, I was doing 12 hours a day and everything contradicted each other and you do this and you do that and you take this pill and you take that pill and you do this and that. And it's very hard to know which route to take. Um, so I saw an acupuncturist at the time who I'd known for many years at that point and he's a specialist in serious illnesses. And he said... Hit it with everything. You can't just go, this is going to be the treatment that's going to do it for me. You have to look at everything. And you take as many treatments, you hit it from as many angles as you can. And I had, <coughs> curiously, I had two other friends who were diagnosed with cancer in the same six-month period. Since then, I don't know anybody who had cancer. Before then, I don't know anybody who had cancer. But in that window, there was three of us. And they also went the natural route. Um, Did they have the, the same cancer? Was it breast cancer? No, they had different kinds of cancer. And they followed different routes. One of them was an, an alternative therapist. She was, she was very informed. The other one had a route that she was following. And she followed it. And sadly, both of them have died. Mm. Um, so I cannot advocate doing what I did. Yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't Because work. it doesn't work for for, for they did they did different things to me. Um but for for me there just there just wasn't any other choice and I'm still here mm. you know 10 years on um, so what route did you take so what did you do then I I changed my diet drastically I became vegan okay 
Um, and then I read about uh, the whole sugar impact on cancer because cancers fed, uh, cancer tumors grow in the presence of glucose. And uh, I met a lady online who wrote a book called The Canton Ketogenic Diet. And she talked about how uh, fats can be used as a fuel source and you can cut your carbohydrate down very little. There, you know, there's three food groups, carbohydrate, protein and fat. You can live without carbohydrate. You can't live without protein or fat. You know, you can have lots and lots of protein, but if you haven't got any fat, you'll die. And if you if you eat lots of fat without protein, your your muscles can't um, you know rebuild. But carbs, you don't need. You do better with carbs, but it's not essential. And when you have cancer, if you cut your intake of carbs down to twenty five grams a day, which is a very very small amount, isn't it? Ounce. Um it's much more difficult for the tumour to grow. So I followed the different kinds of diets. I had acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine. I took pills by the bucket load. I mean, I, I can I can take a handful of pills and just down it in one. <laughs> what, what, when you say pills, is that like... Uh, vitamin pills, supplements, supplements herbal pills, enzymes pancreatic enzymes i was taking loads of them uh and so i just you said you went uh you did a uh, keto diet was that a yeah. um vegan keto yeah okay um so it, it wasn't so much it was she calls it the ketogenic diet but actually keto is like 70 percent fat and her diet was just very low carb Probably okay. it would be more accurate to say it was a very low carb diet. Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, actually, um, I did start introducing meat, um, organic meat, because it's very it's very difficult to maintain kind of good health if you're if you cut out all your food sources, you know. Mm. Um, so then, when did you re? introduce meat into your diet how long like how long was that period that you were vegan for probably about uh just over a year okay and why did you reintroduce meat you just felt like yeah i just felt i wasn't getting enough yeah nutrition mm -hmm. um so mm. you know i'm i had i had a bit of a scare um, when I thought that something had come back and I had scans and they said there were tiny, tiny, tiny little mm -hmm. specks of something. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I was um, I wasn't having a lot of salt at the time and that can cause uh, breast lumps if you're mm -hmm. on a low salt diet, apparently. Okay. Mm. So once I had started having more salt again Kind of, you know, healthy quality salt, Himalayan salt, things like that. Mm. Um, so it, but it's 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 very stressful, you know, having cancer. Yeah. You know, because terrifying, you're terrifying, as well. yeah, yeah. And stress is mm. one of the big problems. And along with like changing your diet, what else did you do? 
Uh, I did coffee enemas three times a day. Whoa. For several months. I must have had the... And why are they good? Um, Coffee, um, if you take it rectally, it uh, goes straight through the hepatic portal vein into the liver and it stimulates the liver to clean. Uh, so that's that's the purpose behind it. Um, drinking coffee doesn't seem to do the same thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, one becomes remarkably relaxed about these things after a while. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And was so. there any, like, um, did you have any... Uh, psychological or spiritual practices like did yeah, you do any I, d- I did EFT okay. EFT was kind of like the big thing was working through uh, the blocks and uh, the issues that I felt had been um, well, one uh, the Germans are quite ahead in this they're quite ahead in functional medicine and uh, one of the theories was that if you have a long period of stress which I had with the agoraphobia, like 10 years. And then the stress is removed and you're in a peaceful place. Your adrenals have been running, overstimulated and running, running, running. And then when the stress goes, they kind of collapse. And your adrenals are involved in your immune system. And... Um, <clears throat> the thing with stress that people don't really realize is that when you're in fight or flight, it's supposed to be a temporary thing. It's only supposed to be while you run from here to that tree to get away from that tiger. Because if you don't get to the tree, you're gone. Um, so if you've survived, you've developed this way of coping. You know, this is short, intense bursts of adrenaline can get you out of trouble and save your life. And then you set up the tree for 24 hours and, and, you know, and relax. But modern life isn't like that. Modern life is stressful the whole time. Yeah, it's kind of like a chronic low-grade kind of stress. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you're in that state, your reproductive processes get tuned down because if you don't make it to the tree, you're not going to reproduce. Uh, your digestion gets tuned down which is why often you see uh, the gazelle that are being pursued by the lions having a poo while they're running away from the lions because the body empties everything out and the other thing is your immune system gets tuned down because you don't need it for these 10 minutes that you're running for your life Mm. and then normally you calm down and everything comes back online you see if you see a gazelle in on on the the, the steps it's been chased by a, a lion and it got away it doesn't sit and go around all the other gazelles and go look at what happened to me it was terrible it was terrible and it doesn't wake up the following morning going oh my god where's that lion where's that lion um, um, you know they they don't live in this stressed out um, way that we do in modern life and even if you don't have any obvious stress in your life you know maybe your relationship's fine and your job's fine, and you're quite relaxed. You know, going on the underground, electromagnetic fields that we're all exposed to all the time, the problems with the food, the problems with the water, pesticides and herbicides that are in the air, 
these are stressors as well, and your body has to deal with them all. So uh, <laughs> a friend of mine said last week, uh, I was talking to him about chronic fatigue. He said, chronic fatigue, it's not chronic. I'm going, what do you mean? He said, it's easy to get rid of. Well, what do you mean? He said, leave London. You know, go live somewhere in the wild, in the nature, in the forest. He said, it'll soon go. And actually, I had chronic fatigue before I went to Peru. And sure enough, after after three months in the Amazon jungle, I stopped having chronic fatigue. So, um, yeah, modern life is stressful. Mm. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. But I do think there are um, good things about um, um, modern life as well. I think the technology and the advancements in healthcare, you know, especially healthcare when it comes to um, like if someone breaks their arm or like they're in some mm. kind of um, accident, like the way that um, like the way that doctors can save those people is absolutely amazing, absolutely. which they wouldn't have been able to before. So I think it's I think like with most things, I, it's easy to uh, romanticize about the past as well. Mm. But I definitely agree with you that there are certain um, certain aspects about the kind of world that we are in now is not healthy and uh, I think for me like I'm really care about having um, having organic food I think that's so important mm. um, so that's something that I think we really need to kind of go back to um, but yeah I think with things like lifestyle it's in a way it's also we have so many tools at our uh, disposal and it's up to us to also take responsibility and choose how we use these tools and not become a slave to them, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's taking responsibility for your well-being, mm. which takes a little bit more work than we're used to. Yeah, that's true. Um, and And people have kind of got into a habit of just going to the doctor and getting a pill and that'll fix it and you know, not putting their foot up so that their ankle can heal, just taking the painkillers so that they can carry on with their life. And so people need to start taking a bit more responsibility for well-being. And the pace of life makes that more difficult. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's definitely a lot more uh, pressures and um, so many expectations that we put on ourselves as well. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think with things like um, becoming more present, practicing um, mindfulness, you can become more aware of what's going on. It's like what you talked about before, like connecting to how does it feel to be in your whole body mm. and paying attention to what your body is trying to communicate to you so that you don't have to wait until it's like screaming at you with something. Yeah, because that's 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 the, you know, if you don't pay attention. I knew somebody once who cut his hand open washing the dishes, um, and and it was just like, oh no, oh, I'm back at work tomorrow. You know, it's like hands like this, and he kept bumping his car. You know, he was he was going through a difficult time at the time in his relationship, and he'd had several minor little bumps. You know, bumper bumps in his car and he didn't pay any attention to it 
so you got appendicitis. That'll stop you. Well, you know, mm. you do. If you if you ignore the small signals, the signals will get bigger and bigger until you mm. stop. And of course, he was signed off work for three weeks and he was back in a week. Um, but yeah, people don't listen mm. when they get little, little triggers. Mm. So do you have like, um, can you recommend something that we can do to help us to pay more attention? Because I, I like there's some people who are so... Um, who are so out of touch with their own bodies, like what, what, mm. how can they start? Start by just put, bringing your awareness into a part of your body that isn't your head. Um, so you put your hand on your chest and just feel into that part of your body because it, it's all your body. You know, there are people who can follow the flow of blood around their body. Wow. You know, it's your body. Can you hear your own heartbeat? Most people can't. Most people don't notice it. Um, you know, do things, doing things like yoga and yoga breath work. One thing I do, which I really recommend, is inner engineering, which is a process that you learn and then you do every day for 21 minutes. And that's been a life changer for me. I really recommend that. I think it's one of the most powerful things that I've come across. Um, and yoga really brings you much more into your body. Um, switch your phone off. I know it's a really unpopular thing to say. But, um, you know, we've only had phones for 10 years. That's the kind of smartphones that we're all on like this, mm. you know. Your books, your MP3s, everything. You know, when the the first phones came out, I said, I'm going to buy one when I can have my ebooks on there, my music on there, and I can take photographs. And that's what we've got now. Um, so they are indispensable, you know. You and I were sitting there going, oh, yeah. what was that message I sent you? Yeah. And you can, you know, you can find everything that you did in the last however long your phone You've had your phone, certainly. Mm -hmm. Things tend to go missing when you get a new phone. Um, so names and addresses of people, contact details, conversations you had, photographs you took. It's all on that little thing, that little box. But, you know, when, when you're living in a house with people and you send them texts rather than going downstairs to talk to them, you know, we all do it. But it's this in this communication interpersonal communication with a real person um, at least with a phone you have a conversation so you can still hear the person but now why do we do it why is it that we do it you know you don't pick up the phone and call somebody you'll sit there going which takes twice as long so if it's a long conversation that you're trying yeah. to have it takes twice if it's just like don't forget bread when you go to the shops then you know yeah it's much quicker to do that I as a message. completely agree, yeah. Like, I'm not a big fan of uh, texting conversations at all. Like, I'm really, really terrible at it. It really gets on my nerves. And it's so true. Like, I had a friend as well. She was saying, like, you almost have to send someone a text first to say, is it okay for me to call you? Mm. Whereas, like, that would have never happened. Mm. Like, if you want to call someone, you just, you just call them. But now it's like, oh, like, it, it, like it's kind of weird if someone calls yeah. you. It's a bit intense. It is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. I do that. I always yeah. send it. Please, is it okay for a call? When, yeah. When's a good time to call? Yeah. You know, 
because people are so busy yeah. and people have obligations well, think, yeah, and things. But, but I think it's also because like, but, we but have you're right. Phones. It is un it is unnatural. You should yeah. be able to you know especially your friends. You know okay maybe it's somebody you don't know so well. Yeah. But if your friends, if you can't just call your friends, you know they yeah. only ever do it when there's something wrong. Yeah. You know, that's what I find now. If and if if scary, somebody calls yeah. me, it's just like, oh my God, yeah. you know, why are they calling? And then they're going, oh, my boyfriend broke up with me. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, you know, it's going to be something bad. But that seems to be the only time when people feel that they can mm. reach out and call somebody. But I think it could also be because, like, we have our phones, like, it's like 24 7 um, access to you. Mm. And I think because before, when you just had a, uh, landline phone is kind of different because if you're not at home like obviously mm. you, you, you couldn't speak um you couldn't speak on the phone or like if you were uh doing something but whereas like with um like if someone calls you while you're at home you probably had the time to mm. to talk if that makes sense yeah so yeah, it wasn't it's, that like your phone wasn't on you all the time yeah so you're not available 24 hours a day yeah. which you yeah. are now yeah yeah and and, uh, and and employers take advantage of that because then people start reading their emails when they wake up or they're on the train. So you're spending another two hours working just because you can. Mm. I'm going to have to start leaving my phone at home, I think. I think it's a very good practice to do. I You know, I love my phone. Mm. But well, yeah, I think it's an absolutely amazing tool, but mm. I think it's, it's up to you how you choose to mm. use it. Like... On my phone, I don't have because um, I can see like some people put loads of different uh, notifications on it. Like mm. for me, the only uh, notification I get is if you send me a text directly, and if you send me a uh, WhatsApp directly. So mm. not any groups, yeah. no emails, no um, Facebook, no Instagram. That's just completely. It's I go into those apps when I want to. Mm rather than constantly yeah. getting... Because it is constant. Yeah. And if it pings or it burrs or it does something, mm. it's just... Oh, like, oh, what's that? <laughs> yeah. It might be somebody important. It might not be. Exactly. Yeah. Well, gosh, time is like going so quick. Like we could keep on talking for ages, but I'll have to start. We'll have to um, start uh, wrapping up. And um, I just wanted to like recap then what do you think were like the key practices that helped you to to overcome uh, the challenges that you faced and then with the uh, successes that you attained? Um, EFT was a life changer for me. Um, uh, in terms of dealing with any kinds of emotional issues or pain mm-hmm. or, or physical issues because most illnesses have some kind of stress component behind it. One thing I'm passionate about is um, infertility um, because there's often cases where people have unexplained infertility and they've had all the medical tests and there's no reason for them to get pregnant, for them not to get pregnant. And uh, uh, there are so many things you can look at from your history from your mother's history from your grandmother's history that can be influencing your ability to conceive now so I'm really passionate about working with that Um, and the other thing is the inner engineering that I told you which is a very simple 
uh, pranayama, which is yoga breath, and some asanas, which are yoga postures, and some meditation. So it's a 21-minute practice. And uh, if you do that every day, your life will change. Mm, amazing. I think one thing that really comes across from you really really uh strongly to me is that um what you said as well that you don't give up Mm. it's that strength that like where does that come from like um I, i i realized recently that part of it the hoping part actually came from what happened with my mother when i was born because she left me and she didn't see me when I was born until I was two weeks old um, because she'd had stillbirths, two stillbirths before me and I was only given a 50% chance of survival and I think she just couldn't, just couldn't do it, couldn't face it, couldn't face holding another baby who was going to die. So she came back. So as as a baby, to be separated from your mother, and then she comes back, and you're going, oh, she came back, yay. Um, and then she did it again because she went to her father's funeral, and then she came back. So I learned that if you keep trying, keep hoping, keep wishing, eventually you'll get what you want. Mm. Wow. So, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. You know, that, that yeah. was the silver lining from what happened to me is I have this indestructible faith I suppose mm, amazing. eventually I will find if there's a solution out there I will find it mm, wow fantastic and uh, for the last question so um, what do you value most and how do you put it into practice yeah, we discussed this at length, didn't we? Because we had quite different views. I I, th- I think love makes the world go round. I really do. And uh, lo- love is simple things like taking a packet of biscuits into the people at work, you know, being kind to people, you know, being thoughtful, listening to what they say they like, they enjoy, they care about, and then presenting that back to them for their birthday, for Christmas, for things like that. So, you know, just being there for people, you know, keeping your word, you know, turning up when you say you're going to turn up. And these days that can be quite difficult sometimes. Mm. Um, and the, the, the problem we have is that people, different things mean different things to people about love. And uh, lots of people think that um you know giving people things you know if somebody loves me they should buy me this and buy me that and take me on holiday and do things for me and uh, i think one of the most loving things somebody did for me that i was seeing was he took the rubbish out for me and i was i was thrilled yeah i hate putting the rubbish out so it's it's loving actions you know anybody can go and buy a bar of chocolate or a bunch of flowers you know yes it's nice it's thoughtful but for me it's not a big deal but if you do something that makes my life easier oh thank you thank you you know love you to bits you know that makes me feel loved that it will do something for me yeah because i think one important point that you made when we had our uh uh conversation um before is that it's knowing what that person's love uh love 
languages. Mm. Because for some people it's getting stuff, you know, and that means that means a lot to them. We, we talked about the story about the, the woman who was going, my husband doesn't love me, he never buys me chocolates, he never buys me flowers. And the guy had spent six months building her a beautiful kitchen. That was his love gift. Mm. But she saw love as flowers and hearts and stuff. Mm. So there's there's actions. Loving actions is one. Buying gifts is one. Spending time together is one. Physical love is another one. What's the, what's the fifth one? What's the fifth one? I think it's words of uh, words of appreciation, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and validation, yeah, yeah, good. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so when when you're with somebody and you want them to feel loved, it's mm. important that you try and work out what their love language is, what things matter to them, because otherwise you can be doing all this hard work, and it's falling on deaf ears, which would be a shame if you're mm. if you really have love for somebody that you want to show them. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Shelley. You're very been, welcome. This has been amazing. I'll definitely have you back on because there's so many things that we haven't talked about. So we're going to dip into each each part uh, more, uh, more, more specifically um, in the future, in the future interviews to come. I would love to do that. That'd be great. Thank you so much. And if anybody wants to find out a bit more about you, uh, what's the best way to get in touch or to find you? Uh, My website is taptaptap.me. Taptaptap.me. Nice Nice and easy. Are you on any uh, social media channels? Um, uh, Bodyful Way on Facebook Mm -hmm. and uh, taptaptapme on Instagram. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. I'll I'll make sure to put all the... uh, links um down below and then everyone can can find you easily that's great so thank you so much uh thank you so much for listening um if you enjoy this podcast please make sure that you subscribe and if you thought that this episode could be beneficial for someone please uh, share it with a friend um thank you so much and looking forward to um to catch you next time (laughs) 